We just stepped on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Bullshit. Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, coming to you today from the Star Fox Studios to hit you with our gridiron notebook, talking about Georgia football, Georgia Tech football, a crazy weekend in the SEC as far as hitting the highlights of a few other national stories. So we'll start in Athens where the Georgia Bulldogs defeated the Tennessee Volunteers 44-21. And the story in this game was a tale of two halves, which with uh, – Tennessee being efficient and looking very sharp in the first half, and then the Georgia defense absolutely stifling them in the second half. Uh, Tennessee actually took a 21-17 lead in the halftime after a goal line stop against Georgia at the end of the half, and Georgia came out and responded with 27 unanswered points in the second half to get the final margin. To quickly recap the game, it couldn't have really started worse for Georgia as they snapped the ball over Stetson Bennett's head on their first possession Tennessee recovers it in the end zone for a touchdown, so it's a quick 7-0. Then Tennessee comes back after a Georgia score, throws a beautiful fade route where they get away with a push-off into the end zone to go up 14-7. And Jaron Guarantano plays fantastic in the first half. It goes 11-13, absolutely shreds the Georgia defense, throws two touchdown passes, through another fade to Palmer later on in the first half. Uh, And if you're a Georgia fan that's used to them choking away games like this that they should win – you, know, you think back to so many of the losses which you had during the Mark Richt era, and even early on in Kirby's tenure, you know, the South Carolina loss last year, it felt like that. And I even got some text messages, you know, are you worried about this game? And truthfully, my response was no, because essentially the game came down to three plays. Tennessee threw two fade routes, both great throws by Guarantano, and a snap that went over that went over Stetson Bennett's head, went 30 yards into the end zone, and they fell on for a touchdown. When you really broke the game down uh, in the first half, Tennessee was not moving the ball effectively. They could not run at all. And essentially, we're getting by on just a couple big plays. And so you kind of had that feeling, at least I did, that Georgia was going to put the screws on Tennessee in the second half defensively, that they wouldn't be able to continue to score with those big plays, and that they would get something going on offense. And that's precisely what happened. Georgia came out still sleepwalking to the third quarter. Got two turnovers in their defense to put them on short fields. Uh, converted those into field goals. And then later on in the fourth quarter, got the running game going. Stetson Bennett was able to hit a few passes. And Monty Rice got a strip sack uh, scoop and score to give the final margin. And George ends up pulling away with a 27-0 second half run. So to recap just some of the stats from the game. So remember that Guarantano started the game 11 of 13 threw for like 135 yards, I think it was in the first half. Second half, he goes 12 of 23 with three turnovers, an interception, and two fumbles. You cannot make that up. And I remember telling some people the day before the game, as well as George has pressured the passer in the Auburn game and the Arkansas games, I just feel like that if you pressure Guarantano long enough, he's going to eventually do the things that he's done for his first three years at Tennessee, and that's exactly what happened. Ill-advised throw, a strip sack that – was totally his fault where he just wasn't protecting the ball by Lee's, Aziz Ojolari strips him. And the Monty Rice one was more of a true blindside sack where Monty Rice really just made a play. It wasn't really poor ball protection by Guarantano. But you just had that feeling that you, you just had the feeling that as the game went on, if you kept pressuring him, he was going to make mistakes, and he did. And the mistakes ended up costing Tennessee dearly. 
Offensively, UJ was, again, I would say efficient, but not really spectacular. Stetson Bennett went 16-27 for 238 yards. Looked pretty shaky earlier in the first half. Um, threw a couple really ugly-looking long vertical throws that were underthrown. Wasn't quite as sharp with his decision-making. Still ended up with a very high QBR of 92.1. He went 16-27 for 238 yards. Probably played better than those stats in the second half, but there were definitely a few plays in the first half where you could see, really for the first time, some of his physical limitations, getting balls bad at the line of scrimmage, um, underthrowing, like I said, a couple of deep balls where we had people open. And it kind of gave you that feeling of, okay, you know, is this going to be this going to be the end of the dream story for him? But he really rallied through some great passes in the second half like he's done and looked sharp. And one of the surprising things about the game was how well Tennessee stopped or limited Georgia's running game. The Bulldogs ran the ball 50 times for 193 yards. It's 3.9 yards per carry. And in particular, Zamir White had 22 carries for just 50 yards. And he was really hemmed up. One of the things that you saw in this game was that while White is a great power back, he still has not regained the lateral mobility that made him the number one running back in the country a few years ago. And when he has to try to jump cut or bounce the ball outside, even though he's still got good straight line speed, he just does not have the wiggle that he had at one point. And it was obvious when you put someone like Kenny McIntosh in the game, and he's able to get loose on a few plays where you thought Zamir White, Zamir White might get loose. McIntosh finished the game with eight carries for 45 yards, and we got a big boost out of the freshman Kendall Milton, who had a couple of really impressive runs at the end of the game with eight carries for 56 yards. But overall, the team ran the ball 50 times for 193 yards, like I said. And it needs to be said that that is a slightly skewed number because the snap that cost them a touchdown early in the game ended up netting a minus 30 in rushing. So if you take that rush out, they were 49 carries for 223 yards, which is four and a half yards a carry, which is much more reasonable. But either way, the biggest story of the game on offense was the inability to break off any chunk plays. They had one long run by Jermaine Burton on by Jermaine Burton on end around for 43 yards. But other than that, longest run by running back was 14 yards by Kenny McIntosh, and they just were bottled up. We tried inside zone. We weren't very successful running counter. Had a little bit of success on the edge, but we struggled to run the ball in the red zone as the as UJ got stopped on a fourth and one on the goal line right before halftime, where Zamir White's tackled twice inside the one. He couldn't get in the end zone. And that was and so Tennessee goes in halftime leading 21-17. And, and for them, it had to be a huge boost of momentum. So it was a little surprising that Tennessee was able to bottle up UJ's run game so well. But on the other side of the ball, Tennessee ran them for negative one yard. That's not that's not a typo. They ran for negative one yard. Now, again, that's slightly skewed because in college football, sack yardage counts as rushing yards. So they had negative 40 yards in sack yardage on Jared Guarantano. But if you look at the three running backs they used, Eric Gray, Tyler Chandler, and Jalen Hyatt, and Jalen Hyatt, they combined for 39 yards on 17 carries. So, again, the story of this game is the UGA defense. And after giving up a few bombs in the first half, Contested throws. I mean, one was a blatant push off by Palmer, by Josh Palmer against DJ Daniel, who was in pretty good coverage. Actually, he's ahead of the route. Josh Josh Palmer pushes him in the back. Daniels goes flying off, and Palmer makes a leaping catch and then jogs in the end zone. The other one was just a ridiculously well thrown fade route by Guarantano to the to the corner of the end zone, um, with Palmer again being covered by Tyson Campbell, and it was actually very very good coverage. It just a, almost a perfect thrown ball, but 
the solution for that in the second half was to heat up Jarrett Guarantano. And they ended up getting five sacks, one by Monty Rice, two by Aziz Ajilari and Channing Tindall. And they brought pressure from lots of different ways. Saw Tyreek Stevenson come on a nickel blitz through B-gap, not from the outside. They were blitzing X stunts where they have the, the nose go one way into A-gap and the inside linebacker take the opposite A-gap. Uh, Tindall, Tindall got a sack on that late in the game. And they just find such creative ways to bring pressure. thought the secondary, other than the two deep balls, played really well. Tyson Campbell came back and knocked down a couple passes. Eric Stokes got a pick off a bad throw based on pressure. And they just overall squeezed all of the life out of the out of the Tennessee offense. Guarantano ended up with 215 passing yards and two touchdowns, if I didn't mention that, and one interception. But the big takeaway in all these stats and all these numbers is that UJ gave up 14 points on offense to the number 21 team in the country. And in the second half, they absolutely, completely dominated the game. And looking ahead, my thought was this. If UGA got pressure on Tennessee, who has arguably the best offensive line in the SEC, when they face the Alabama Crimson Tide next week in Tuscaloosa, they're going to get pressure on Mac Jones. They have pressured every quarterback they face. They're going to get pressure on Mac Jones. And that was good for a UGA fan to see that they can get pressure on anyone. Now, I'll say this. If you miss Mac Jones, you're going to give up about three 50-yard touchdowns because Jalen Waddle, John Mechie, and uh, Devontae Smith, if you make the UJ secondary as good as they are, cover for five or six seconds, those dudes are going down the field on 15, 60-yard touchdowns with their track speed, and we're not catching them. Now, on the other hand, what if you do get the same kind of pressure on Mac Jones and get him on the ground? Could... Could this be the first team to hold Bama under 40 points this year? Is that a possibility? And if so, can the UJ offense score enough? Alabama just completed a game with Ole Miss in which they gave up over 600 yards of offense, 48 points, and and over, over 270 yards rushing. Ole Miss absolutely blasted Bama with tempo, and, and basic run plays. And one of the ones that Alabama struggled with was inside zone and split zone. They struggled with the Ole Miss RPO game. They struggled with covering their tight end. Alabama just really was, was really unable to even slow Ole Miss down any point. But to see Ole Miss just go up, and Ole Miss was a good offensive team last year, but to see them just go run a rough shot over the Alabama defense, UJ does not have that kind of offense. But it just makes you wonder, if UJ can get to 31 on this Alabama defense, can Alabama get to 30 on the UJ defense? A few other thoughts about UJ matching up with Bama. One of the things that's going to have to improve for Georgia is that Stetson Bennett is going to have to be better throwing the ball vertically. He was very good down the middle of the field, especially in intermediate routes. I mean, he's so good throwing slants, comebacks, even seam routes, but the deep outside throws are he struggles with. He didn't throw good post routes. He throws good fades in the red zone, but when it's you know a 40-yard throw, he puts too much air into the ball. That's something that's going to have to get better because the vertical passing game is something that's just been missing from this offense, and it's something that Alabama does extraordinarily well, and you don't want to get into a contest where you're taking shots at Alabama. At some point, we've got to be able to get a player like George Pickens involved who, again, only had two catches. This time, not for a touchdown, broke a streak of six straight games with a touchdown pass. And while the emergence of Kyrus Jackson has been great, he had four catches for 91 yards and touchdown on a great throw. 
and catch. Uh, George Pickens is a future first-round draft pick, and he's got to get more than two catches a game for 14 yards. Uh, we've got to find ways to target him more. And I just think that a player like him, who's the kind that can win one-on-one matchups, catch 50-50 balls against the best corners in the country, he's got to become more involved. The other thing is, it's a little discouraging to see the Georgia corners losing 50-50 throws on deep balls because if you can't cover Josh Palmer, you're not feeling good about trying to cover Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. So even though, you know, like I said earlier, one of those is a perfect throw, the other one's a push-off, still, like, you want to see those plays made and go into the game with confidence that when it's time to play man and blitz that you can cover or at least hold up somewhat against Alabama's ridiculous depth at wide receiver. Now, as for the the matchup itself, I do believe that Georgia has more overall speed on defense, which I know is crazy to say about, against an Alabama, about an Alabama team. I think Georgia has better speed on defense. I think Georgia's front. I think Georgia's defensive line is better. I think they have superior depth at linebacker. The secondary is debatable. I think Georgia is better at safety. You could argue that Bama's better at quarter with Sertain. Um, but I do think that Georgia's defense is significantly better than Alabama's. They've tackled better this year. But the question is offense. We don't score the way Bama does. And we don't do some of the things that Bama's had trouble defending. Georgia does use RPOs, but not the way like an Ole Miss does, where their RPOs involve their quarterback running to create conflict for linebackers. And that's where Ole Miss and Texas A&M have really hurt Alabama in the past. UJ also is not great at throwing the ball vertically, as, as I mentioned, um, which is another thing that Bama had trouble with. They had trouble with one-on-one matchups with the tight end for Ole Miss, which is something that does play to UJ's advantage with the tight ends that they have. But when you look at the UJ offense, even though you know you have an air raid guru in Todd Munkin, it's still very much a run first, run second, and then throw third offense with enough passing built in. But it's the kind of offense that you can see Bama having the most success against <laughs> with the way that they're constructed. So it'll be interesting to see if they try to take any of the things that Ole Miss had success with, the tempo, which Bama was struggling with Ole Miss's tempo. Uh, I mean, they would run up to the line, run inside zone two or three plays in a row and get 30 yards because Bama couldn't sub and couldn't get adjustments made. So it'll be interesting to see if UJ involves any of that and to see if they incorporate any more complex RPOs and and additional throws to the tight ends. Because the tight ends have been targeted this year, but I think uh, two catches for McKitty and two catches for John Fitzpatrick today and one target for and and one target for Washington. But it'll be interesting to see if they try to get those matchups as I think I do believe that Alabama's linebackers are susceptible in coverage with the fact that I just don't think they run as well as these UGA tight ends do. So those are a couple of things to look for for that matchup. And it'll be interesting to see what the line is. I'm predicting that Alabama will be favored by somewhere around four or five points. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what the matchup is. And, of course, we'll have a breakdown and recap of that for you here next week. As for the rest of the SEC, one thing's become pretty apparent. Georgia is apparently the only team in the SEC that still plays defense. Because as you look around the conference and see the scores from other games, Alabama and Ole Miss played a 63-48 game. Alabama gave up 48 points. LSU gave up 45 points to Missouri, who was winless coming into this game. And it puts a little bit of context around that initial Mississippi State game where LSU gave up 600 yards passing, and, you know, your initial thought is, well, good grief, the Mike Leach air raid is going to work here in the SEC. Well, now we actually know that 
LSU's defense is just horrible. Um, they gave up 406 passing yards to Connor Bazelik, who's making his first start at quarterback for Missouri. So it kind of puts into context why uh, that Mississippi State shocker from week one maybe doesn't mean quite what we thought it did at the time, especially when you consider that Arkansas turned around and beat them the next week. And then Arkansas turned around and honestly should have beaten Auburn. Auburn uh, was able to survive with a less with a last second field goal after a very controversial spike. Florida gave up 41 points to Texas A&M and a 41-38 loss. So it seems as if Georgia is the only school in the SEC still it, it seems like Georgia is the only school in the SEC playing defense at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see if that's enough to propel them past Alabama. Before we move on from college football, one last team we want to review is obviously the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, who got a big, big conference win over Louisville on Saturday, excuse me, on Friday night. And Tech rolled into this game with a one-on-one conference record. Ended up giving up a whole lot of yards and big plays to Louisville. But the biggest difference for Tech this week is they went on to secure a 46-27 win. And the game was honestly much closer than that. Zero turnovers. They forced three fumbles from Louisville and had zero turnovers. And we've said this about Tech here on this podcast before. But with the talent they have in offense, they have a good running game, ran for 192 yards, got some big passing plays to Jameer Gibbs and Malachi Carter, two people we mentioned before. But the big thing is that with Georgia Tech football, when they don't turn the ball over, they're going to be competitive because they do have some talent on offense, especially in the, in the backfield with Jeff Sims, young quarterback, who was very, very good in this game, ran for 64 yards and touchdown, threw for 249 yards and two touchdowns, and again, no turnovers. And Georgia Tech, this was a game you can tell they clearly wanted to win, pulling out stops, the fake punt early in the game, uh, scoring, a pa- scoring a touchdown on a trick play or a reverse pass, and it's amazing how just something as simple as taking care of the football allowed them to win this game. So they trailed this game 27-26 about halfway through the fourth quarter. We're able to get a score. Louisville stop, another score, and then ended up tacking on a late one to make the final margin. But the game was actually much closer than that. But it's hard to believe when you see that final score that Tech was actually trailing this game with eight minutes left. And that's a great win down on the flat for Coach Collins. They go to 2-1 and one in the conference right now, which is fantastic. From that, we'll shift over to pro football, where the story of the weekend locally was the Falcons dropping to 0-5 for the first time since 1997. They fall 23-16 to to the Carolina Panthers, and as you've heard me talk about this team over the course of this season and talk about my optimism for them still making the playoffs, that optimism all but died with this loss because my optimism was based on the fact that the Falcons had a very, very good offense for the first three weeks of the season, and I thought that this offense would be able to score points and win shootouts against teams that had average to slightly better than average quarterbacks. And that's where I would put Teddy Bridgewater. He's a you know slightly better than average NFL quarterback. And the thought was, you know, if you have the same kind of offense that's scoring points on Dallas and the Seahawks the way that, the way that it did, then you're going to have a shot against those teams. Instead, the offense looked out of sync for the second week in a row. Matt Ryan throws a horrible interception late in the fourth quarter with a chance to make the game 20-17. to The Carolina Panthers go on and run the ball to run out the clock. Essentially, you give them the ball with the Falcons back with three minutes left, and the Falcons didn't have enough time to get two scores and win the game. So the final margin was 23-16, but what was just disappointing was Calvin Ridley, despite having eight catches for 136 yards, had multiple drops. Ridley 
as good as he is, just doesn't make all the catches that you need a big-time number one receiver to make. The Falcons, for the second week in a row, had no vertical passing game. They are definitely missing Julio Jones, despite all the stuff we talk about, the depth they have at receiver. They are definitely missing him and the attention he draws. Matt Ryan was throwing into tight windows all afternoon. They wasted a great day from Todd Gurley, who had 121 rushing guards and 14 carries, including a 35-yard touchdown. And he looks like about 80% of the Todd Gurley that we came to know and love when he was back with the L.A. Rams. So it was just so disappointing to see, you know, Teddy Bridgewater go for 313 and just light up your defense again. And the Falcons actually played decent in the run game, but what happened was on that last drive when the Falcons were down 20-10 to 10 after the Matt Ryan interception, they simply could not get off the field. The Carolina Panthers ran Mike Davis right on the Falcons' throats. The Falcons missed exactly 1,227 tackles in this game. And even though the, Fal- the Carolina Panthers didn't end up with huge rushing totals, they totally dominated the line of scrimmage in that fourth quarter when the Falcons needed stops and ended up running out about five minutes off the clock because the, the Matt Ryan interception came with about seven or eight minutes left. So as a Falcons fan, it was a result that was discouraging because this is one of those five games that you thought they actually had a chance to win. And as a division game, it's one of the ones that you needed to win because the idea is, you know, you think you split with the Saints and the Bucks, and, you know, you sweep Carolina. Maybe you have a chance, but now you're just hoping to win a, one game against each team, maybe. So – Having said all that, another disappointing loss for the Falcons. Defense was better, but still not good. This is not a great offense they're playing Carolina, and they're missing their best player in running back Christian McCaffrey. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater did play well, but again, every quarterback plays well against the Falcons' defense. And at the end of the day, now that the offense looks average, you just come to realize this is just not a very good football team. And as we found out from a Jeff Schultz report after the game, it sounds like it's finally going to cost Dan Quinn his job. So the reports are that the Falcons are going to fire Quinn um, at some point later on this week, probably either Monday or Tuesday. It's just a formality. And I found that curious, not because Quinn does not deserve to be fired, because at this point, you know, as we've said before, you're a defensive coach who's been coaching the defense here for five years and has only put together one and a half years of competent defense. And in a couple of those years, the defense has been an absolute disaster. You know, you give them a pass in uh, 2018 for the injury-plagued year, but this year – even before the injuries, when the Falcons were healthy the first few weeks, they were terrible on defense. And now that they do have legitimate, legitimately devastating injuries, I mean, it's like they're putting a JV high school defense out there. And so with Dan Quinn not being able to fix the defense and the Super Bowl resting on the shoulders of Kyle Shanahan's offense, well, we said this before, but, you know, really what's his value? And with the reports of him being already essentially fired – the question I have is, why now? You know, why not after the Dallas game? And now that you're five games into the season, are you really going to have an interim coach coach the next 11 games, which would be darn near unheard of? And so my thought is just simply it makes so much more sense to do this during the bye week. Um, and, you know, you say, why wait three or four more games? And my answer is very simply, it's a lot easier to reorganize your staff and probably your front office in two weeks when you don't have a game to prep for than it is in four days, so where you fired Dan Quinn on Monday or Tuesday, and now you're doing trying to do your game prep this week as you reorganize your staff. And it just doesn't seem like the best situation. So whether or not Quinn is actually fired at the time of recording this podcast, and it's Sunday night, at this moment he is not. But I just feel like this is a move that probably makes more sense to do, do in week, I think, 9 or 10 when the Falcons have their bye. And you can get the staff reorganized. You assume Jeff Ulbrich probably is the one that takes over. Um, and – if they choose to fire Thomas Dimitrov, then you have to reorganize your front office to, to figure out 
Who's going to make transactions as far as getting people on with the practice squad, signing free agents? We have even more injuries, those kind of things. You know, you would assume it's probably Rich McKay, but we don't know. So those are just things that have to be thought about when you're talking about this move. And I think even me being one of the most optimistic Falcons fans you'll find is has to agree with all of you dissenters that it's time. I mean, there are literally no good reasons to keep Dan Quinn around at this point. And you're hearing people talk about the go-the-tank route, bench Matt Ryan, trade Julio, and I hear you on that. I'm not against you. The one thing I'll say is because the New York Jets are an absolute disaster and the New York Giants are also really bad, I'm not sure that even tanking is going to be enough because I think that this team still bumps their head and wins four or five games, even if you have – uh, Matt Shaw playing quarterback, and you sit Grady and Deion Jones. This team could probably, just on some of the talent that's still left in the offense, win four or five games because Todd Gurley ain't going to sit. He's in a, he's playing for a contract, and you know you don't want to sit guys like Caleb McGarry and uh, Chris Lindstrom as a chance to get better. So you're not going to sit everybody. And I just don't think that this team can be honestly bad enough to get up to where they would need to be to get Trevor Lawrence. And yeah, you could possibly get a top five or six pick and get you know a Trey Lance or Justin Fields, but. To me, those guys are nice players, but they're not people that you tank for. I mean, we're talking about rebuilding. you got to go big, and I don't think you tank for those guys. So all that said, it'll be interesting to see what happens throughout this week with the Falcons. They have a winnable game again next week against Minnesota, who's not very good on defense anymore. And, you know, the Falcons are what they are, and you just have to hope that Julio comes back. And if you're still running, if you're still rooting for the Falcons to have some kind of success this year, you have to hope they can come back and win a shootout. Quick side note as we wrap up on the Falcons. The year that they started 0-5 in 1997, they actually finished that season 7-9. So take that for what it's worth. So in this final segment of the show, I want to pivot to the team that is giving us all some source of hope and joy, and that is the Atlanta Braves. I heard it said earlier this week that the Falcons' decline is understandable because they had to fall so that the Braves could rise. In other words, the Falcons sacrificed their 2020 season so the Braves could have one of their best playoff runs in years. And if that's the case, and this ends the Braves World Series, I will gladly make that sacrifice. But I thought that was pretty funny when I heard that earlier this week. The Braves have a matchup with the Los Angeles Stars. It starts Monday at 8 p.m., finally getting some primetime games. And you've heard all the stats in the Dodgers' regular season. They were by far the best team in baseball on paper had a 43 and 17 regular season record with a 717 win percentage which is excuse me a .717 win percentage which is you know out of this world their run differential was plus 136 meaning that they they averaged plus 2.2 runs per per game for the year which is ridiculous by comparison the next closest team in run differential was the San Diego Padres in their own division and their plus minus runs was 52 runs less than the L.A. Dodgers. They led the league in runs. They led the league in WRC+. They led the league in ERA. No matter how you slice it, they were the best team in baseball on paper. And it's going to take an absolutely unbelievably ridiculous, insane effort by the Braves to beat them. Now, again, those are regular season stats. And we know that the Dodgers have had a penchant for disappointing in the postseason. So... I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at the playoff stats, which are quite interesting, especially when you look at the pitching numbers. Now, remember, this is a small sample size of five games. The Braves' pitching staff has a .09, a 0.92 ERA so far this postseason with a whip of .8, both of which are by far the best in the playoffs. They have 59 strikeouts this postseason, which is the third highest total in the playoffs, but they've only 
played, but the Braves have only played five games, whereas the two teams above them, the Yankees and Rays, played seven. They have a .169 batting average against, which is, again, the best in the playoffs so far. And they have allowed the fewest home runs in the playoffs and have the most quality starts in the playoffs with three and, of course, four shutouts in five playoff games. So to say that the Braves pitching has been a little bit good in the playoffs would be a gross understatement. Now, to be fair, they have faced two pretty average to below average lineups in the Florida Marlins and the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds do hit a lot of home runs, but they're not really great away from their park. Florida Marlins lineup isn't anything special. That's why they were you know, below 500 team for most of the year. So the Dodgers lineup ain't that. Uh, <laughs> Mookie Betts is one of the probably the five best players in baseball. Cody Bellinger is an MVP candidate. They have guys like Max Muncy and Jock Peterson coming off their bench. Uh, I guess they could start Jock Peterson, but they are deep and they are talented. They led the league in home runs. They walk a lot. They had a major league record for home run rate for home run rate. By any measure, this offense is fantastic, and the Braves have their work cut out for them. When you look at the tail of the tape, the starting pitching is definitely advantage Dodgers because they're going to start Walker Bueller, who this year was very good and last year was really an elite pitcher. Um, they'll start him in game one. They will, you presume, start Kershaw in game two, one of the best pitchers of this generation, even though he's not the Kershaw of you know 2015. He's still very, very good, and, you know, he has had his struggles in the playoffs. That's been a real thing, especially the NLCS, because Kershaw, we know he dominates in the NLDS, but in the NLCS, in the World Series, he has been mortal. And you'd assume they'd probably go with Urias in Game 3 as a starter, whereas the Braves, you know, are going to start Freed in Game 1, Ian Anderson in Game 2, and then Kyle Wright in Game 3. And then Game 4 is, yeah. <laughs> I don't. You don't know if we're going to get a bullpen start. They could go with someone like Matt Sick pitch in the first two innings and then just bring arms out of their bullpen, which really wouldn't be a terrible option. Uh, do they go with Josh Tomlin as a as a you know a two or three inning starter and then piggyback? I don't know, and I don't think they know. And to some extent, you would think that would be based on the outcome of the first two games, but with the Braves playing seven games in seven days. There's a good chance that Max Fried only gets to pitch twice in the series. I mean, it's hard to imagine him being able to pitch more than that. Um, you would assume he pitches game one and you hope game five. I mean, that's not a guarantee, though, but you'd assume he pitches game one and game five, and you just have to do a lot more juggling when you don't have those days off. So another question has been, what do you do at Travis Darnot? Does he catch seven days in a row, which is, you know, it's the playoffs, but that's not common. And if you do choose to give him a day off and play Tyler Flowers, does that mean that you put Marcelo Zuna in left field? And all the Braves fans listening are, like, covering their eyes right now. But you can't take Ozuna's bat of the lineup, so do you just roll the dice playing him in left field and then DH Darno to keep his bat in the lineup because he's been mashing? Or, here's another crazy twist, when you get a left-handed pitcher like Clerk Kershaw, do you throw Pache in at center field, yank Marcakis, put Acuna in right, Duvall in left, and go with a right-hand heavy lineup? That's another option, but you know the problem with that is that Pache hasn't had like any at-bats in months, so it seems like. So does that give you the best chance to win? Uh, and we know Marcakis isn't great hitting lefties, so just a lot of things to think about and some unique problems presented by the seven-game series. I definitely think that, as I said before, the starting pitching advantage goes to the Dodgers. 
would say the bullpen advantage goes to the Braves. Uh, bench, you have to say, probably goes to the Dodgers. I mean, you know, you have guys like, like I said, Max Muncy was an all-star the last couple of years coming off your bench. I mean, even though he hasn't been great this year, they have so much versatility, even though they haven't really needed it. And then I do like the Braves bench, but I think Dodgers bench is probably a little bit better. And then when it comes to, and when it comes to lineup, you said you have to give the advantage to the Dodgers just because of their ability to hit home runs and they walk a lot. They'd strike out less than the Braves. So overall, I mean, the Dodgers are a better team. So if the Braves do win, I, here's what I think has to happen. The Braves have to come out of those first three games with a 2-1 lead, understanding that that game four is, is probably not going to be your best chance to win. But if you come out of those first four games 2-2 and you can come back with Freed and Ian Anderson in games five and six, you've really got a shot. You really have a shot. And I'm believing in this Braves team. I think they're going to hit. I think they're going to hit Kershaw. I think they're going to hit Bueller. But the thing is, you're just not going to stop this Dodgers lineup. You're not going to shut this team out twice in a series. They're going to score runs. And the question is, can you get the three or four, or can you get two or three off the starter and then get the additional one or two off the bullpen, Dodgers bullpen late, to give them a chance? Because Kenley Jansen, as their closer, has not been the dominant closer he was for several years. And you know, there is some vulnerability there. So can you stay close enough with those starters in to be able to do what the Braves always do, which is rally against bullpens and then lock games down with their own bullpen? The answer for me is maybe. <laughs> I just, as great as they've been this postseason, I just wonder if the Dodgers have too much. And so my heart is saying Braves and six, but my brain is saying Dodgers and seven. And so my prediction for this is the Dodgers and seven. We have this podcast again in a week. I hope I'm wrong. We're having a preview of the Braves on their way to the World Series. So that's the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening.